Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Museum Talk. I'm your host, Ava, and with me today is Dr. Rebecca Bollier. Since 2018, Dr. Bollier has been the director of the Florence Griswold Museum, which is located in Old Lyme, Connecticut. Dr. Bollier earned her bachelor's degree in American studies from George Washington University, as well as two master's degrees, one in art history and museum studies from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and another in arts administration from Columbia University. Additionally, she received her PhD in American and New England studies from Boston. University. So hello, Dr. Bullier, uh, and thank you for being hello. with me today. Um, and can you just tell me a little bit about your role as the director of the Florence Griswold Museum? Sure. Well, the Florence Griswold Museum is a 12-acre historic landmark, historic house museum, uh, interpreted landscape, and fine art museum um, in Old Lyme, Connecticut. Uh, as you said, I have been there since 2018, and my role really is to be overseeing and facilitating all of our operations, working with our board on determining strategy and leadership of the institution, overseeing our staff, which is usually around 23 members, depending on season, uh, and really just thinking about everything that we can be doing to make the Flow Grizz as, as best as it possibly can be. Awesome. Um, so this project that I'm doing is really focusing on how racism and discrimination has kind of affected our, in, our museums and cultural institutions and how people kind of perceive these institutions, especially what's going been going on in recent years. So just in general, in your opinion, how do you think racism and discrimination affect the way people view and participate in art museums? Sure. Well, I think that if we take a step back, Art museums really are, and most museums, this includes history museums, it can include science museums, are really a mirror for society. They're, they're really there to reflect and um, speak to what's happening in society, what's happening with culture, what's happening broadly with civilization as it relates to communication, to technology, but mainly about how we relate to each other. Mm -hmm. um, we've really seen a lot of the methodologies for museums shift over the past uh, couple of generations. Museums are no longer simply a gatekeeper where it's very insular. It's by the wealthy holding collections of the wealthy and for the wealthy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that we all look at that. And those of us who have been in museums for a really long time see exceptions to that, but really do view that as historically and conventionally the rule. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing happen, um, and I would say probably over the past 10 to 15 years, it's a really recent development that we're starting to see more of our focus with the work of museums be about the mission and the public trust. Mm -hmm. And that always has been looked at and viewed through a lens that relates to certain organizational principles to do with financial management, mm -hmm. to do with um, having a tax exempt status and an educational value. Mm -hmm. But instead, what we're looking at right now is a really welcome reckoning, I would say, and I don't think that's too strong a word, mm -hmm. for museums to reevaluate what that public trust is and what it means to serve the public. So there's this transition from serving those with the biggest collection or those with the most dollars, the deepest pockets, to moving towards an ideal of trying to find something that is accessible and meaningful to a variety of audiences and that represents similarly a variety of experiences. 
Yeah, as someone like I've been going to museums ever since I was young and I absolutely love them. Um, and like, I wanna go into this field and I wanna work in these institutions, but like over the past couple of years, it's been tough seeing how museums have been reacting and responding to like kind of what's been going on like um, culturally and in society. Um, and I do, I really don't like that there is this like belief that these that these places are just for like the wealthy or like the upper class, like they're supposed to be for everyone, like they're supposed to be for the community. Um, so that's kind of what I'm trying to interrogate with this, just um, so I've spoken with different like museum workers and scholars kind of how museums have somehow gotten to that point where we see them as these like high institutions, um, which they are, but like not in those like conventional ways. Um, they're supposed to be these community spaces that just kind of show this art for like learning, for conversation, for dialogue. Um, so kind of following up on that, what is the Florence Griswold, Griswold Museum doing in terms of like diversity and inclusion efforts and making sure um, it, um, it seems welcoming and it's portraying itself as welcoming and open to everyone who wants to uh, visit? Sure, well, there's a lot of things that we have been doing over the past few years. And what I think is most important and what the work is that we are doing is it's multifaceted. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about accessibility, when we talk about DEAI and diversity, we're talking about physical accessibility. We're also talking about creating a welcoming you know, environment for those who are neurodiverse, for those who um, have suffered traumatic experiences, for those who may not have English as a first language. That's what's phenomenal about art is it is something that is not textual. It is something that is designed to be fluent no matter what your experience is, you know, to be legible. So for our purposes, we've been focusing on a couple different angles. We've been looking at, first of all, physical accessibility, which can be really trying with historic sites, right? Because a lot of times you will have a site that in order to interpret it, um, authentically, and I mean physically authentically, mm -hmm. where you are not messing around too much with the visitor experience, a lot of times there are floors that are not accessible to those who can't access them without a wheelchair or walking aid. Um, you know, there can be things where the rooms are small or difficult to navigate. So for us, we've tried to work with creating more technologically savvy ways of interpreting these spaces that may not be physically accessible, but can be used through virtual tours and other ways of having um, an experience and an exploration of our site and understanding that. So the physical accessibility, reaching ADA compliance is a major goal of ours. In terms of the work that we're doing in our galleries, both in terms of our interpretive materials that is put about by education, mm -hmm. as well as those that are curatorial, we've really looked at having more of an interdisciplinary lens. And by that, I mean, that we're not just looking at things through a conventional art historical scope, mm -hmm. but rather bringing in, you know, political historians. What was happening in the world at that moment politically? Where was this work fitting into that? What does it reflect? Similarly, we'll bring in intellectual historians or we'll bring in um, those who work with ecology, you know, on the ground. So we try to bring in professionals and we try to bring in academics that aren't necessarily decentering art as something to be studied, mm -hmm. but rather bringing in this context where we're looking at it through the human experience. Mm -hmm. Why would this have hit someone a certain way when it was painted in 1902 versus how we're looking at it now? 
I think one of the most important things with art is to remember that it's only historical when we decide that it is. Mm -hmm. But when the colonists were in the Lyme art colony, for instance, and they were painting um, on the grounds of the Flow Grizz and staying at the boarding house, they were unconventional. They were bohemian. They were living outside of the norm. Mm -hmm. We should not look at art museums as speaking only to a, a sanctioned few. But rather, you know, everybody, no matter what their experience is involved in that creation and that display. And we, we need to recognize that. So that's really kind of the, the instrumental methodological shift that we've been making. Okay. Um, and just out of like my own curiosity, what um, kind of like education programs and like outreach programs are you guys doing um, to put like, put like your name more out into the community and like letting people know that you're there and that um, you are this institution that is there to serve them. Yeah. So when we talk about education and outreach, right, that's always been something that's interesting because a lot of times it's offsite mm -hmm. or it can be remote. So that's something that's really been enhanced over the past couple of years with the pandemic mm -hmm. as we had to really augment what was happening on site with what people could experience offsite, which can always be a struggle for an art museum because you want people to come in and look at the art. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in terms of the education programs, we really try to have curricular ties, which is looking at what are the necessary tools that we're trying to instill mm -hmm. or to give uh, students that are visiting. We look at our education programs as very healthily, yes, acknowledging the needs of, of children. And that's where we're talking about those curricular ties but then also doing adult education, uh, making sure that we have opportunities to do things like we're doing right now, a series on black art and talking about the black art experience in America. Mm -hmm. and that's a great way to yes, use our collection, but then also leverage the skill set of our scholarly environment and colleagues to come in and to get audiences that may not have heard about this before in old Lyme comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Our outreach programs are a little bit different and those are more targeted. Those are offsite and a lot of times reach audiences that may not have any history with the Fine Art Museum. Okay. So we work with um, victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. We work with those who have, um, who are in elderly homes and assisted living. Mm -hmm. We work with those that are physically and mentally handicapped. We work with those who have English as a second language and are learning their way around. So we have all of these different ways that we're working with, yes, underserved and underrepresented communities. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't wanna decenter those experiences, mm -hmm. but rather they're complementary and you know, concurrent experiences for people who are just coming from a totally different angle. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what we really wanna honor and kind of elevate and create this space for in a lot of those education and outreach programs. Have you seen these like programs be successful? Yeah, I think what's what we always try to highlight and, you know, obviously as a nonprofit, we look for funding to support these programs. Mm -hmm. And what we always highlight to those funders, because we always are evaluating them when we talk about how funds were spent or, you know, anything is to really talk to people about the quantitative and the qualitative analysis of these programs. So mm -hmm. quantitatively, how many people are engaging with them? But I find much more value for a lot of these programs and seeing where there are stories that come out of individual experiences that would not otherwise happen. Mm -hmm. We find that it creates a lot of confidence. We find that it creates a voice 
Um, many of the populations we work with struggle with communication. So to be able to find something that is not just benefiting them in terms of, yeah, I'm learning about art, but it's giving them a personal skill set to be successful. And that's one of the best things that we can do. We have an absolutely phenomenal education team um, and our director of education, David Rao, and our manager of youth education and outreach, Julie Riggs, are just a wealth mm-hmm. of um, ideas like that I could never come up with. So <laughs> I just look at my job as being the facilitator for that mm-hmm. and making sure that they're not overwhelming themselves. But as long as, as they have the willingness to serve, there are always audiences that need um, to be embraced. And that's what we try to do. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Um, and just shifting gears a little bit. Uh, so in the recent past, there have been protests at like the Whitney Museum and the Museum of Modern Art in New York um, about certain exhibitions, certain board members um, and things like that. Have you seen any of these sort of tensions at the Florence Griswold Museum? Not particularly. Um, we, we, try to, we try to keep clean of a lot of this. Uh, and so we haven't had too many of those issues in, in our institution. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, one reason that we don't have those issues is we've certainly received offers of funding or support from those that we find problematic. Um, and we simply don't accept it. Uh, so there are ways that you can form terms with gifts. There are ways that you can look at that. But what we're really starting to see in museums is this understanding of mission alignment mm-hmm. with funding, meaning those that are putting their names on galleries with very large gifts mm-hmm. or are supporting an institution, it can't necessarily simply be all on the terms of the donor. And that's a real shift in philanthropy. Okay. Instead, we're looking at a focus on how it reflects and boosts the mission and the nonprofit educational focus of the institution. Mm-hmm. So funding in a lot of ways has become um, this, this new ground for how we're looking at really elevating that mission and making sure that every element of our work, not just the art that we're buying or the ways we're interpreting it, those are critical pieces, but also essential is the idea that who we are aligning ourselves with and partnering with and bringing that vision to life is reflective of the mission. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing that a lot in terms of the donor gifts uh, that's why there has, you know, a lot of this activity has been spurred by a lot of these protests questioning, mm-hmm. you know, the what we call reputation laundering, mm-hmm. which is when money has been made through maybe unethical means, not necessarily illegal, but mm-hmm. unethical, mm-hmm. as is the case with the Sackler family. And then in order to divert attention away from how that money was made, it goes to a museum and all of a sudden we're focusing on their philanthropic efforts and how generous they are. Um, So that's where we see a lot of of these protests come from. For our purposes, what we try to do is make sure, and this is not super hard because we have a fabulous community, (laughs) that the people who are are investing in us financially or with support are representative of the values that we hold. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone thinks the same way politically or that everyone thinks the same way in terms of certain social benefits. But rather, it's the idea that if you are valuing the museum, you're valuing the cultural sector and what we stand for. Mm-hmm. So we expect that to be um, a trade 
you know, in, in terms of how we look at defining those allies and those partners. It seems like a lot of these dams could uh, use you guys as an example uh, when it comes to that, <laughs> because it seems like where a lot of the tensions come from is those donations and those gifts and yeah. what they yeah. end up doing with that money. Um, and kind of along the same line, do you think the protests that have happened at some of these very prominent institutions, do you think that, that they've been helpful um, in kind of changing the narrative and changing the ways that art museums are going to operate in the future? Yeah, I, oh, I definitely think so. I mean, they represent such a small percentage of the museum field in, in, in one regard, right? These are, these are institutions, many of them who hold billion dollar endowments, who have boards of individuals that represent, you know, Fortune's top 100 corporations. That is not necessarily the case with smaller institutions. Mm -hmm. At the same time, what it shows us and this comes back to that word reckoning, mm -hmm. that if these large institutions are vulnerable mm -hmm. to the public eye, it's again coming back to that concept of the public trust, right? It's again coming back to that idea that the public and, and the community and the civic world around museums in which they function expect museums to have a high standard of behavior. Mm -hmm. um, we are not corporations. We are dependent on public support Mm -hmm. And that means that we're not catering to two or three individuals. Mm -hmm. And we're also setting a tone that those individuals are no longer going to be successful, those corporations, those families, foundations, whatever, with that reputation laundering, that we expect them, if you are going to be giving us money, that this is the standard that we are held to. Mm -hmm. So the hardest thing is to turn down dollars when mm -hmm. you're a nonprofit. You know, and, and I can think of a couple cases where we've had offers of phenomenal support and we look and we say, you know, we just, we see some potential pitfalls for us and we absolutely focus on transparency. Mm -hmm. So as you see that, that element of not just financial transparency of, of your tax returns are available, your financial st statements are available, but you know, for instance, one area that we're seeing really pick up speed is the idea of mission aligned investment, mm -hmm. investing or ESG investing, right? Environmental, social and governance focused investing, where literally not only the direct dollars you're receiving in individual or corporate donations mm -hmm. or the grants you're receiving, but where endowment funds are held also benefit either the local economy, the arts sector, or general um, kind of social and economic health of the of the um, society. So that's kind of a fascinating shift that we're also accountable to that. It's not just pointing a finger, it's also making sure it's in a way that is fundamental to every organization of every size. Yeah, no, that definitely, that makes sense. Um, that makes the most sense. And unfortunately it seems like sometimes things that make the most sense don't always uh, happen in practice. Well, yeah. Um, um, I guess my last question for you today is just what do you think the future of art museums looks like um, when it comes to displaying art, showing art, um, being for the community, because uh, they are changing. Um, so just what do you think that looks like? I think that we're, we're definitely going to move in the direction of de-siloing. I think a lot of the ways that we've conventionally divided the display and installation of art it's going to be less about defining things from the perspective of where things were found and more mm -hmm. about global um, 
you know, uh, navigation patterns, how people migrated throughout history. I think we're also talking a lot about how specific periods of art, you have to remember that's a convention we made up essentially the idea of like the Renaissance and it's Italy, you know, I mean, we decided that, you know, the world didn't. Uh, so for us, it's, I think we're really focusing on the globalization trend that's been happening since about 2000. And I feel like it's finally starting to coalesce Mm -hmm. in a way that makes sense for different organizations to bring it together. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the idea of the fine art museum as something that does not engage with public history, with preservation, or with material culture and artifacts is increasingly a relic itself. I think mm -hmm. that we're looking at more understandings and representations of the human experience and that's going to be things that maybe weren't always traditionally considered fine or high art forms. Mm -hmm. For instance, we have an exhibition right now that we just opened of New London quilts and bed coverings mm -hmm. that may sound like, oh, okay. So I'm looking at some comforter that was made in 1820. Mm -hmm. Well, not at all. When you come in, what you're actually doing is opening a door to understanding transatlantic trade, mm -hmm. to understanding the maritime economy, mm -hmm. to understanding the role of domestic art. Uh, the role of the woman, iconography that demonstrates the status of the family, why they were using certain colors that were available to them and why they weren't able to use others. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different stories that we can tell with art that mm -hmm. are complemented by looking at a loom or looking at an advertisement. Mm -hmm. And those are kind of new ways of display that again, focus on this comprehensive and inclusive experience rather than segmenting out an art object and looking at it only through the conventional lens of style and iconography. So it's both how we look at individual works and then how we're grouping them together. That's going through a pretty radical change. That's exciting. It's exciting that museums are uh, making these changes and realizing that some of these conventions we've just arbitrarily established ourselves and we don't need to keep following them if we really don't want to, if we do want to change them. Oh, absolutely. And I think the most important thing that anyone can do who is in museums or wants to go into them is to really be prepared that you've got to be ready for the world to change around you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that we're increasingly seeing that accountability mm -hmm. that it's not like, well, this is how I learned it when I was in school. I mean, the way I learned art history as an undergrad was very different than the way I learned it 10 years later in you know, my PhD program. So mm -hmm. as long as we're all still willing to learn and, and be open to that experience, yeah. the better for all of us. Yeah, well, hope, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed yes. it stays that way and it keeps it keeps <laughs> forward, project, um, forward progress. Uh, but thank you so much for being with me today and sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ava. Let me know if you need anything else. I will. Thank you so much.